another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Dictated uh, again from my home home office, and this is actually a Saturday that I'm doing this recording, and, and given that Friday's show seemed to be so well received doing listener feedback, and given that I've already kind of looked at my Monday and realized that Monday is going to be a very, very busy, uh, somewhat uh, disastrous, but disastrous in a good way day for me. I, I don't think I'll be able to get a show edited and up Monday once I go into the office. So I decided to go ahead and use the balance of some of the calls that we have and uh, do another listener call. And I'm publishing this show, obviously, since you're listening to it, on Monday. Um, and it is episode 146 of the Survival Podcast. We're almost up to episode 150. Uh, so hopefully you'll enjoy today's show. Uh, I really enjoy doing a listener feedback show for a variety of reasons. One, it'll let me co- cover a lot more topics than I usually do in a single show. And don't worry, I'm going to still do the single long shows on one or two topics and uh, continue to build those out. But the other thing is, this show from its very beginning, the thing that's made it special is it's not Jack's survival podcast. You know what? It's really our survival podcast. This is a show that's been built by the audience. I would say 70 to 80% of the shows that I've done have come directly from suggestions from the audience. Uh, the listener base has been grown by the audience. I asked you guys way back in June of 2008. It just seems like yesterday to me uh, when I was dictating this thing and the audio was crappy and everything else. Please help me spread the news about this show. And I gave away an iPod in return for doing that. And uh, since then, we've done some other things with the listener contest. But contest or no contest, it's you guys who've gone out and done amazing things to spread the show. So when I get to do these listener shows, I get people that have been involved in the show's creation. And, and folks, I want you to realize, if you're a listener to this show, and if you've told anybody about it, your fingerprints are on the show. You are part of the creation of the show. So you get to be you know, part of the creation of the show, and then we get to hear people who were part of the creation of the show and get them involved and bring them on. So um, I've got some show, uh, some uh, some clips lined up. I think it's six. Let me check real quick so I'm right when I say this. I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven clips lined up, dropped into my uh, editor. And what I'll do is uh, I've listened to them just long enough to make sure that they are appropriate for the show. I really haven't listened to them all. So this is going to be as close to the live call-ins as I'm going to get for for a while here, and uh, we'll see how this works out. And uh, let's go ahead and take our first call. Hey, Jack, this is Heavy G. Here's a question for you about food storage. Got the food, let's say pancake mix, pasta, beans, rice. Can I just keep them in a cool, dry place in their packaging, maybe in some Tupperware bins, or should I do what I think I ought to do, which is vacuum seal, uh, smaller packages of them, and then maybe even maybe do that in mylar or clear plastic. So let me know 
what uh, what you think the situation should be with that. There's a great thread on this, but I want to get your take. Great thread on your forum, of course. Want to get your take? Thanks, Jack. Bye bye. So that's that's really a great question. And again, Heavy G uh, has been a great forum contributor. So I, I appreciate everything he's done on our forum and some of the uh, writing he's done there. And uh, thanks for the call. Um, the forum thread that you're talking about, I actually haven't read, and it may be uh, shocking to some. I, I don't read probably eighty percent of what's on my own forum because you guys are so active. I just can't keep up. Um, your question kind of answers itself to some degree. But I'll give you my thoughts on it beyond that. In a perfect world, we would all buy our food for provisions. And when we bought them, we would you know, vacuum seal them, mylar seal them, uh, label them, stack them in perfect order with dates, which ones to use for first, keep a running inventory, etc., agnosium, and they would be packed in something uh, very uh, protective from rodents, etc. Um, one of my favorites is always is the five-gallon bucket with a good sealed lid put on with a mallet. I mean, that's about as uh, sealed up and protected, especially if you now have, you know, mylar and what have you in, inside there. So I think that's a that's kind of like if you have the means and you have a vacuum sealer and you can afford to do all of this, that's what you should do. Now. Do I do that with every bit of my own preps? No, absolutely not. And I think there's also kind of, we have to look at, well, how often do I use this? Because, you know, we stay, um, eat what you store and store what you eat. So it might be a good idea to put aside some of your preps like that, if you have the means to, uh, for that really long-term storage component. But stuff that you're going to be taking from and using in the next six months, it doesn't really make sense to do that with it. So it's really, you kind of divide your preps into long-term this stuff's going to be put away for at least a year before I see it again, unless the shit hits the fan. And short term, this stuff I'm going to be pulling from, these are my pastas, my rice, my pancake mixes that I'm going to be using day-to-day, in-and-out, constantly re- replenishing. And then as I start to move that back, I'll take new stuff, wrap it up, mylar pack, etc., put that back in storage, pull some of that stuff out and start using it. Uh, so that's if you're kind of getting started, that's one way to look at it. The other thing, though, is, and the reason I don't always, like, harp on all this vacuum sealing and stuff like that is there's a lot of people out there that they're sitting here looking at, becoming a modern survivalist and realizing that it doesn't mean being a tinfoil hat type individual and living out in the woods in a bunker somewhere worried that you know any person might find out where you are that it just means being prepared paying down debt storing food producing your own food setting up preserved food from your own garden learning how to forage learning how to hunt learning how to fish learning how to control your expenses learning how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't and what they're saying is i can barely afford to buy right now in my current situation if I want to do all this stuff or even a part of this stuff to buy extra food let alone a vacuum sealer so I don't have a vacuum sealer I I can't afford mylar packaging I can't afford to go out and buy a case of mountain house food and things like that and they're saying well you know does that mean I'm out so I don't want to ever to, to, to that person I don't want you to ever think that you can't make a difference for yourself because your first goal 
is to get one month of food stored up and have it be food that mostly you would use anyway. And maybe you wouldn't use it in a month because you have other fresh foods you're bringing into the house, but maybe over a three-month period you would use it. So that first 30 days of provisions, you have no need to make it storable for a year. You only need to make it storable for 90 days to six months. And in its own packaging, most of that food would be okay. Tupperware is a good line of defense. The big rubber tubs, yes. If I had my druthers, though, I would stick to five-gallon buckets whenever you can. And there's a couple reasons for that. One, they're just a better storage container. Okay, they just are. Um, rats can chew through a rubber-made container fairly easily. And you may think you don't have any rats in your house. Trust me, there are rats everywhere. You may not have to worry about it, but especially if you're going to be storing it in an outbuilding, storing it in a garage, any place like that, which most of us, your pantry's filled up with your basic storage, so your additional storage has to go somewhere else. And a piece of advice while I'm on that, don't keep all your storage in one outbuilding. Don't keep all your storage in your garage. Don't keep all your storage under your bed. Break your long-term storables up into multiple locations so if you have a fire, an earthquake, a flood, you lose part of the house. You do have rodent problems. It's not all lost in one fell swoop. But, again, what you need to do is uh, make sure that you are protecting your preservations as best you can. So, Again, the mylar, the vacuum sealing, if you have the ability, that is the way to go. If you don't, don't not do these things. And at least go out and get yourself five to six to, you know, maybe even ten five-gallon buckets with good sealed lids. Not these, you know, like the used ones are fine, but you need to get a good lid with a good seal on it. And then take your long-term storables, your beans, your rice, your pasta, your mixes, your flours, put them in there, and it's really easy to get the, uh, I can't think of what they're called right now, but the little packets, little sachets, the oxygen absorbers, and put them in there with your food. Lock that down, use a rubber mallet to close it, and at least, at least take that level of preparation with some long-term storable. So even if you're just working on your first 30 days, maybe you go out and fill up a bucket with beans, multiple different kinds, a bucket with rice, a bucket with pasta, and a bucket with pancake mix. And if you have that put aside, believe it or not, that's going to last an awful long time if you ration it and you use it as as kind of a long-term product. So that would be kind of phase one, moving phase two into the, uh, the Mylar thing. So that's a long answer, but the thing is I try to answer questions in a way that serves everybody. So the guy with all the equipment, yeah, man, do it up. Do it upright. That's the best, most safe way to keep it. If you're right now deciding, do I buy the equipment to vacuum seal or do I buy food to store? Buy the food to store first. Work your way into that. And never forget to check out eBay with equipment like that. I'm looking for a new camera for the videos that we're going to be putting in the members area. And I'm selecting a camera, and I've looked, and I've already found one that at the store price, best price I can find, uh, and then in eBay, a brand new one from a, you know, a power seller, good ratings, saves me 150 bucks. Uh, so always look to eBay for all your equipment purchases as well. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is 423 Aaron from the forum. Uh, your uh, bailout show today, the one that mentioned uh, uh, civil disobedience is the one that's uh, caused me to finally call. Uh, you'll notice in a lot of my threads, I've mentioned the Appleseed program, which I'm a, a part of that, which is, which is sponsored by the Revolutionary War Veterans Association, which I'm also part of that program. 
that program uh, was set up along the lines of what you were talking about. Uh, we do the rifle marksmanship classes that have a history component, and that's what most people think of it as. If you show up to a Appleseed uh, class, that's what it'll seem like mostly, that it's a, a primarily rifle class with some history thrown in. But in all practical purposes, it's really a history heritage class that has a really good rifle uh, hook to it, a rifle class hook to it. Um, we do the the rifle classes, and, and we do a, a great job. We have some of the best instructors, rifle instructors out there. But putting it into the context, the historical context of the American Revolution is the whole point of the program, to uh, show people what was done in the past to gain our freedom and to wake people up, wake Americans up to the fact that that, that is what is in their blood, the the, the history that is in our blood and to try to motivate them to, to get up, write letters, uh, be a vocal part of the community. Uh, a, a lot of the things you were saying in this, this last pot, uh, podcast was uh, right along with the goals of the Appleseed program. And, uh, you've got some coming up in Texas here soon. I hope you guys can be a part of that. We've got one of our members that is trying to be uh, to do a uh, a segment at that Region 3 get-together. He's going to do some of our history class and maybe do some of the rifle marksmanship instruction. We probably won't be able to do any actual firing. They're, they're working on trying to work something out with that. But if anybody's interested, you can go to the RWVA site, rwva.org, get some more information, or you can PM me on the forum. Like I said, I'm 423Aaron. Uh, thanks, and if you have any questions, feel free to contact me. Well, um, Aaron, that, that's a great call, and uh, I'm happy to basically give you the time there to promote Appleseed a little bit, because I think Appleseed is a, uh, a wonderful program. And for folks that are not familiar with it, I'm going to put a link from the show notes uh, in today's show to the Appleseed program so you can go look at it. And I want to confirm with Aaron, you'd offered before that you guys would do uh, one free shooter um, at an Appleseed event. And I'm happy to give that away in the listener appreciation contest uh, to somebody. What I'm going to want to do is make sure that offer still stands. And if it still stands, I'll send an email to all the people that are part of the contest. And I want anybody that participates in the contest to win a free spot at one of the shoots to go through the schedule of what's coming up and make sure that you would actually be able to attend. Because that's a pretty big prize. And I, I don't want somebody to win it and then not be able to go. So uh, if that offer still stands, we'll do that. As far as the history component, I think it's a great way to teach history because I think a lot of us kind of glaze over. I never did because I've always loved history, and it's, it's part, I guess, why I have the interest that I do. But a lot of us glaze over with historical documentaries and especially history classes. And to be honest with you, our education system, and there's a call coming down the road here about just that, our education system, really – doesn't teach accurate freaking history anyway. Um, so I, I love what you're doing there. And I guess the biggest thing that I would encourage people to do is become as informed as possible, whether it be through Appleseed or anything else. But understand, 
that our nation is built on revolution and actually it's built on treason. I don't think a lot of people realize that the action of signing the Declaration of Independence and sending it to the King of England was an act of treason. Now I think the problem is that we've decided that treason is a bad word and anybody that commits treason must be wrong. Um, There's Many times where, let's say, shooting somebody, killing somebody with a gun is wrong. You want to rob them, so you shoot them. It's wrong, right? But it doesn't mean shooting somebody is always wrong. You might be shooting someone, breaking into your home, trying to harm you and your family, steal from you, hurt somebody else, something like that. You could be in a situation where somebody just starts shooting at random and you take them out. Both of those situations, doing something that apparently is wrong, ends up being right. And, you know, we'd like to look back at the Declaration of Independence and believe that being that it created the United States of America, which at one time was the freest nation in the world, world, it was right. And our leaders have strayed far away from that foundation of the Declaration of Independence and really, to me, they have become traitors of the Constitution. So there's a point at which good men may be called upon to stand up to our government as as a tyranny again. And I'm hoping that it can be done uh, in a peaceful way, that America is a place where we can have revolutions on Election Day. And uh, thankfully we can still do that. The problem is now that we've gotten to a point where it doesn't seem like either side of the aisle listens to the people. We had the Republicans in control and they didn't listen to us. Now we have the Democrats in a, in a commanding control and they don't listen to us either. And uh, I, for one, am fed up with it. That's why we've been talking about different forms of civil disobedience. I'm still big on the state independence resolutions that are being issued. Texas has issued theirs. Uh, I'll do a show next week with as many people to contact as possible listed in the show notes. Maybe we should just start a forum thread um, where it's just a listing of every state and every sponsor. Maybe somebody could take the initiative and do that. Let me know about it. I'll link to it from the site. And uh, we can just start thanking these people that are doing that. On Appleseed, again, I think it's a wonderful program, and if that offer is still out there to give away one position as a shooter at an event, we'll make it happen. I'm just going to ask the audience if you're going to participate in that particular contest to make sure that you are going to be available to go to a shoot uh, on the schedule before that. So, again, I'll post a link to the Appleseed Project, and, uh, Aaron, if you get back to me and let me know if that offer stands, uh, we'll make it happen. Probably not this week, but the following week. Uh, That way people have plenty of time review it, check schedules and things like that. Hey, Jack, thanks for all your hard work. Hey, on a few uh, podcasts ago, you mentioned uh, that it might be a good idea to grab some junk silver. Uh, I purchased a, a mixture of silver, gold, and platinum about 14 years ago uh, for a couple thousand dollars, and it's appreciated to you know almost 7000 at today's prices, a little over 8% return over the 14 years. And I'm thinking it's a great idea, too, to add some of that junk silver so I have some smaller denominations. I was just wondering if you could uh, touch uh, on some information about where would be a good place to purchase it, maybe in the Dallas area, or safe places that you are aware of uh, maybe to purchase it over uh, the Internet, uh, like Tulane Company or something. I'm not sure. I just doing some initial searches. So uh, if you happen to have some information on where to pick that up in the Dallas area and you can touch on that, that would be great help. Thanks. Okay, bye. 
Again, uh, another great question, and uh, let me see what I can do to answer that. First of all, let me comment on the small uh, evaluations or the small pieces there and looking at Young Silver from that standpoint. If you ever do get into a barter situation, that's probably the biggest advantage to Junk Silver, that I can break it down to a dime or a quarter, a very small component of an ounce of silver, in a recognizable currency. So a person looking at a 1960 silver dime will be familiar with it and know what it is. Uh, they'll at least know that it's a dime. Most people in a barter situation that you would be bartering with, and I've heard people say, well, if we get in this barter economy, how do I know that Joe Blow will know what a silver dime is? Well, Joe Blow will figure it out faster. He won't make it. I mean, that's the best way I can put it to you. If we end up into that kind of an economy, it'll spread fast. What is a commodity and what isn't? And silver coinage, uh, you know, silver's been worth something for as long as it's it's been known by man. Uh, the concept that it would ever become worthless is, you know, just not uh, very believable. And, I mean, I think ammunition and uh, and silver coinage would probably be our two biggest currencies. That's a place where uh, James Wesley Rawls and I seem to agree. And that's in a really bad situation that that could happen. So it's good for that. It's also good just for straight investment like the other type of uh, precious metals you were talking about. It's a hedge against inflation. It's a hedge against the devaluation of the dollar of the currency actually being repurposed into a new currency. There's All kinds of things that could happen out there like that, and uh, it's a good hedge. As far as where to come up with it, there's a coin shop in Arlington that I can't even remember the name of that I used to deal with quite a bit. Um, it's it's off of either Pioneer or Park Road, just to the uh, the east of Bowen. There's one of those shopping centers up there. That's the only place I've really dealt with on any regularity locally, and it's been several years since I've uh, dealt with them. But the guy was a good guy. He sold stuff all the time, right around spot price. And if you walked in and were wanting to buy, I remember I walked in one time and uh, I wanted to buy a roll of silver eagles and he told me that something had just driven the price up that it was momentary and if I came back next week I would get a better deal um, that shocked me and it earned me you know it earned his me it earned him my business for quite a while uh, we then left the state and it's been that long since I've dealt with that guy but I bet you he's still running that shop up there and I'll try to find out the name of it and maybe I'll just send you a PM and let you know directly it doesn't really apply to everybody else but that's kind of shocking you're looking for what i've been buying where i've been buying most of my coins now has been on ebay and the way i've been safeguarding that is i've been buying from sellers with good seller recommendations the beautiful thing about ebay is you can see a person's done 500 transactions and 400 people left them positive feedback when you see a guy in those with those kind of numbers and don't be afraid to buy from new sellers but when you're buying something that's expensive you know look for the seller that's been around a while you can see the feedback on them you can also look up their negative feedback and a lot of times you'll find out the buyer's being an ass and trying to extort the seller so if you see 95% or better positive feedback, you're probably dealing with a good seller. Now, the way I've been getting really good deals and getting spot price pricing on junk silver coinage, uh, you know, basically dimes, quarters, 50 cent pieces, etc., is I look for people with a buy it now price is somewhere in the range, maybe 10%, 20% over. 
Then I go over to Coinflation, take the current spot price, and I'll put a link to Coinflation. There's a silver coin melt calculator uh, over at Coinflation. And then I will either place a bid or make the seller an offer for the exact current spot price of the silver. And uh, they usually recognize that. They realize that's what you've done because they know the spot price. And the first thing they do when they get an offer is go, well, how close to spot price is that? And a lot of times they'll recognize you as an educated buyer. And if they're not selling one lot, if they have lots of uh, you know silver on hand and they're breaking them down into uh, half-pound bags or quarter-pound bags or $10 face value in quarters or something like that or trying to move a lot of inventory, they'll know you're an educated buyer. And they'll either accept your offer or your bid. Or they'll counter offer and they'll go maybe five percent over spot, which is fair for anything when it comes to junk coinage. It's, it's five five points over spot. Uh, you won't get a yes every time, but you'll get a lot of yeses. And if you buy on eBay, um, this is kind of an additional tip. It'll definitely help with this type of a transaction. Every time you get a good experience, be sure to leave positive feedback for the person that you purchased from. Send them a message, then letting them know that you did leave them positive feedback, and you would like positive feedback as a buyer, all right, because your seller can leave you feedback as well, and they will generally turn around and do that, and, you know, pressure to do business, good communication, fast payment, something like that. When you have 10 or so um, sellers leaving you positive feedback, the guy you're bidding with knows he's not going to have any headaches, and he's more likely to take your deal. So that's kind of how I've been buying my junk silver lately. And even with shipping, it's if I'm buying you know two hundred dollars worth, I may be paying four to six bucks for shipping uh, with most of these guys. Maybe eight at the most. Well, sales tax in the state of Texas is eight and a half percent, at least in Arlington. So that would cost me about two hundred and thirty dollars for a two hundred dollar purchase with sales tax, where it's costing me $208, $210 without paying the sales tax by buying on eBay. So that's why I've been doing that lately, especially for junk silver coinage. Uh, just make sure you do a good checkup on the seller and make sure he's a good seller. So hopefully that answers the question. Hopefully, in a way, that will make it uh, beneficial to people outside of Dallas-Fort Worth. Hi, Jack. My name is Julia. I'm calling from Florida, and I am a recent fan of the show and spreading it around, doing a great job getting out some educational information. Probably too late for tomorrow's show, but calling about your succession from all the systems, and one of my biggest things to, um, that I haven't heard addressed much is the school system and that the public school system, which is huge, huge, huge part of the system, one of the first um, things driving towards the uh, big government, I would say, one of the first things they took over. So I am a homeschooling mom of twin boys and was very intimidated by the idea at first. I'm sure it will intimidate a lot of people. It's something that we all rely on so, so very much, and I'm a product of that system. High school valedictorian, in fact. However, (laughs) I think that um, that is one of the biggest systems that would make such a difference to be independent of So any steps we could take in that direction, I think, will send a message along with the medical and all the other parts of the establishment. But the public school system is just so huge. And I've been a teacher. I know plenty of teachers. It's not down on them or the employment, but I'm sure you will uh, be able to get the idea across better than I can state in these few comments. But for anyone who's out there, read some books by, um, let's see, the title of the book is Dumbing Us Down, John Taylor Gatto, and the hidden 
um, Underground History of American Education is another book he's done, and wow, the system isn't broken. It's doing exactly what they want it to. It is keeping us obedient and um, teaching us and keeping it is a child care system so the rest of the workers can go to work and the bees and whatnot. Um, I'm probably going to get cut off, time to go to bed, but wanted to at least get a couple of those comments out there in time that maybe they would get uh, thought about and mentioned on the show as another one of the systems to keep in mind. Thanks so much for a great job. Bye. Well, first of all, Julia, let me say kick ass, right? Because you're the kind of person that's actually doing something to make a difference. And I'm so glad you called, and thank you for bringing that up. Uh, let me give you my thoughts on, on homeschooling and, and the, the whole concept of the education system. Number one, I am not a big fan of the, um, of the education system as it is in America. Um, I was not a good student in high school. I did not graduate valedictorian. And uh, if you can imagine a guy that does a podcast like I do while driving down the road, um, if I were in school today, I would probably be uh, heavily uh, sedated with Ritalin and uh, diagnosed ADD or ADHD or whatever the hell else you want to call it. Fortunately... Um, they didn't really have that condition uh, fakely labeled back when I was in school, uh, so I just had to sort it out for myself and learn to deal with the uh, the social implications of being in school, which I think was actually a good thing for me. The education, though, was a waste. Um, in any class that I had an interest in, you could have handed me the textbook when I was in high school. Uh, I could have read it cover to cover in about three weeks, and I could have taken any test you wanted me to on the book, and I probably would have got an A on it. Yet I was a lackadaisical CB, occasional A student, um, and really had no point going on to college. It didn't matter that I was intelligent. The education system didn't work for me, and that's because it's designed, in a best-case scenario, you're right to create workers, and in a worst-case scenario, you're also right to create drones. So it's not about the teachers, like you say. It's about the system. Now, as far as declaring independence for, from it, homeschooling is a great way, and it's a great start in that direction. And it's why I believe uh, the public education system hates homeschoolers. And I absolutely believe that. And I think what they really hate is when your kids show up at spelling bees and science fairs and major scholarship initiatives and win them like crazy because they get a better education from a parent who often never went to college compared to this whole staff of teachers and this whole system because it blows holes in the crap uh, lies. The, here's the problems that I see in this sector as far as, one, declaring independence from it. Um, the education system is among the most insidious of ways that they take money from us because they tax our property to do it. So if you tax my spending, I can spend less. If you tax my income, I can earn less and seek deductions. But when you tax my property, I'm pretty much screwed. I'm going to give you the money. So one of the big problems that single people have always had with the education system, and I think justifiably so, is they're saying, look, I'm paying $4,000 a year in property taxes, the bulk of which are going to a public education system. I don't have any kids in the school. Why am I providing for the common good? This isn't socialism. 
is it? Oh, yeah, it kind of is. Uh, there's a point to educating our society, though, and I think that initially the education system started out with the best of intentions. We have to have kids learn. Every child should receive an education. That's that's kind of a good way to look at things, I guess, when you're small frontier towns and one or two school teachers teach everybody and everybody knows each other by name. But now with these massive education complexes, we have high schools that are bigger than a lot of community colleges in major areas. We have teachers that are being forced to teach English in Spanish, which makes no sense to me. I can see why a lot of people take the homeschool route. Here's my biggest concerns with this. One, you were intimidated, and you were a high school valedictorian, and you were a teacher. If you were intimidated, imagine a person that got through high school with B's and C's, thinking about teaching their kids, and they never went to college, how intimidated they are. Now, I know plenty of people in that situation have done it, and they end up with kids that end up, frankly, a hell of a lot smarter than they are, because when you teach, you don't have to know everything. You have to know how to teach, and you have to know how to enable learning, and that's been lost on our education system. So it can be done, but because it's intimidating, a lot of people will never avail themselves of it. There's also a lot of people that look at it and go, financially, we can't do it. We have to have a two-family, two-income family. And yes, I think the education system as daycare created that, but now people are stuck in it. So what I would really like to see from the home education community is starting to set up actual private schools, very affordable, very low-cost private schools, considered home schools, but where people participate at different levels. So maybe I'm going to come in and I do guest lecturing on American history, and my son attends that school. So it's still a home school, the field trips and things like that, more of an organized way to do it, and then have some level of financial contribution to help cover the cost of things like maybe a facility and things like that, so that people that can't actually do homeschooling can start to participate in it. Um, And I also think that would solve one of the other issues, one of the concerns that I have with homeschooling, and I know that you guys do a lot to address this, so I'm not coming at this the way that the typical educational system people do, I'm coming at this from a very rational, logical, Jack Spirico way, is I do think there's value in taking a kid and putting him into a classroom with 30 other kids and saying sort out how to get along in public and in a, in a, in a community environment, and I think some of that has to get lost with homeschooling, so I think the more that can be done by by the homeschooling community to move into a private school type of format, and I'm sure there's legislation and bullshit in the way of that, but if you can sort out how to do that and start creating very small schools, but maybe they're educating 20 kids or 15 kids or even 10 kids, um, and bringing in that that kind of frontier education type of situation where everybody went to the same schoolhouse and first grade sat in one row and second in another and third and that type of format I think that we could go a lot longer there. The big thing though is even taking your kids out, declaring independence is fine. It's figuring out some way that we can start reducing these property taxes. If enough of us pull our children out of the public education system and they have left the support, we need to then back that up by demanding a tax reduction because they're educating less children. What drives me crazy is how much money they spend. They're spending right now around $12,000 a student per year in the Dallas-Fort Worth area on average, in the Texas state on average. Now, I can send... 
a, a kid to any college in America short of Ivy League and high-level private institutions for that kind of a cost. And that just makes no sense to me that we spend that much and we have such an abysmal result. And I think you think you're right. We are getting the result we want if we are the people running the system. We're getting drones. We're getting children that are churned out with an intention to be employees that go to work and enslave themselves with debt. And that's what the system's producing. So it is time that we do something about it. And, you know, a big salute to you for taking an active role in that. But I guess my challenge to everybody that's doing what you're doing is how can you make it more inclusive? How can you bring in the families that can't homeschool? How can you help them? And how can you start reaching out to people like myself? I would love to go into kind of like the, 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 the multi-group homeschool environment once in a while and talk about how to be an entrepreneur. Talk about how to be uh, understand the history of the United States from a different viewpoint and these other things that you have a flexibility to do. And I guarantee you, they're not going to let me go into a public education system with the things that I have to say. And, yes, I would keep it G-rated before anybody asks. Uh, so great call, uh, great subject. Glad you called in. Please call back in again with more stuff like this. Look forward to it. And uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, I call from the interior of Alaska. Once you know, I love the show, love the variety. I love the way you're a straight shooter. And I was wondering if you know of any seed catalogs or seeds that do particularly well in a colder environment or colder climate like the interior of Alaska here, uh, maybe in northern Canada, maybe some of your listeners might know. I sure appreciate everything. So um, another call from our friend up there doesn't leave us his name. Uh, I wish you would leave me your name, just first name anyway, uh, from the interior of Alaska. And that's really cool. That's a great question. And I have to admit, I am not the most knowledgeable on cold weather crops because I'm blessed with amazingly beautiful weather here in the state of Texas. I mean, what I call cold, you probably call a warm, sunny day um, up there. That said, I do think I can be of assistance to you. Uh, the first thing is just to look to the crops that grow well anyway in colder environments and you know, utilize those wonderfully long summer days in Alaska to get as much as you can uh, out, of, out of the growing season that you have. So short crops that do weather in the cold are all the greens, the lettuces, the spinaches, the kales, and things like that. Um, broccoli. And, and, and Brussels sprouts are almost, you know, you have to almost bury them in snow, and that sometimes doesn't kill them. I've got a picture I should really publish of my broccoli plants. We had an ice storm here in Texas, believe it or not, uh, a few weeks ago. And it absolutely, I mean, the leaves were down to the ground. Some of the leaves broke off of the broccoli plants from the ice on them. And uh, a week later, uh, it was 60 degrees out, and I was outside, and I cut all the heads off the broccoli. There's eight plants. And I got like four uh, blanched bags in the freezer of broccoli from them. And we ate some that night, and I've been harvesting uh, the little spruits that come up ever since, so that didn't kill it. So broccoli is a good way to go. Now, as far as sources, I have two that I can recommend for folks that are looking for colder stuff. One is called Territorial Seed Company, uh, and they are... Um, 
specialized uh, for vegetables in cold and wet climates. And they have a free catalog on their website, uh, some good books and accessories. So Territorial Seed is a great place to uh, look to if you are in that cold, uh, wet environment that a lot of people in the Pacific Northwest are. So, I'll put, again, I'll try to put a link to that, that in the show notes. The other thing that I wanted to point out is there's a company called Rain Tree Nursery. And they're up in Washington. And they certainly sell a lot of, you know, this is really not a vegetable seed catalog. It's more of a permanent crop catalog. So they sell a lot of things that you can't plant uh, probably in the Alaskan interior because they're not going to make it through the winter. But believe it or not, they sell a lot of things that you can. One I'd really recommend that you look into if you're in a very cold part of the world is, is hardy kiwi fruits. And for some reason we think of kiwi fruits as tropical, but, you know, they come from uh, China. A lot of them do. In Siberia, and uh, they're grown in New Zealand, and New Zealand's a cool place, but it's not tropical at all. I mean, it's an island. I guess we think of it that way, but if you remember, um, what was the big uh, uh, trilogy, uh, Lord of the Rings movies, the beautiful, huge green mountains, that's all filmed in New Zealand, and uh, that's the Kiwi country, right? So hardy Kiwis are hardy down to 20, 30 below some of them. I think there's actually one variety that Rain Tree offers that's hardy down to 40 below zero over winter. Now don't get me wrong, it's going to kill the vine, they'll die back, but the roots make it, you mulch them and then they come back, and those will produce up to 100 pounds of fruit per vine. So I think that's, and with the long summer days, that land of the midnight sun you got going on up there, that should be really advantageous to you. So check out those two resources, and if you're from Colorado, Montana, South Dakota, uh, you know, British Columbia, Canada, any of those places that are really cold, uh, they're probably going to be useful to you as well. So let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. Uh, my question is about water storage. Um, is it safe to store water like in an outbuilding or shed that doesn't have any air conditioning or heating? I live here in Texas, and you realize how uh, hot and cold it gets around here sometimes, especially the heat, I guess, is what I would be concerned with. Um, this was water that I would have uh, treated uh, with bleach, a bleach solution. And um, so... If you have any question, any comments about that, let me know. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, that's a great question. I think the reason it's a great question is I think a lot of people actually do worry a lot more about water going bad than they should. And there's only two ways that good water can go bad. Now, that's assuming you start out with good water. Now, you said this would be water that you treated. Now, my thoughts on that is unless this water has a propensity to have something in it in the first place that's bad, you don't need to treat it. If you're going to store it, you're going to store it properly. As far as your outbuildings about high and low temperatures, there's no problems with that other than one of the two ways that you can have water go bad. I'll explain that in a second. Uh, and then the other side of that is you want to make sure that if it gets cold enough that the water can freeze solid, it has enough room for expansion so it doesn't rupture the kitchen. Container. So other than that, the heat and cold doesn't affect water one way or another in the least. Uh, let's talk about the two ways that water can go bad. Now, one way that water can go bad is if something from the outside gets into it and begins to create life in the water. And if you want to see an example of this, take a five-gallon bucket, rinse it out nice and clean, put real clean water in it, set it outside on your back porch, and leave it there on a, you know in the summertime for a couple days. And you come back, and you'll start to see mosquitoes in there, and 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 
pond scum forming and all little types of life forms in that water. Now, obviously, if you wanted to drink that water, it's going to have to be purified before you could drink it. So that's something living getting into the water. So if you start out with nothing living in the water, and most of your tap water is going to be you know, nothing living in it, hopefully you don't have anything living in your tap water, if you're getting water from a well source, it probably is a good idea to purify it because what you could have is a situation where you have a mild amount of, um, let's say, bacteria or pathogen of some sort in your water. Most well water across the United States, anywhere near any kind of farming or ranching, has some E. coli in it. You might think, oh, E. coli, that's really bad. Well, but people drink it for 100 years and no one gets sick or no one dies. And the reason is, one, you develop a little bit of a tolerance to it, and two, it's in a very small part per million. But if it's put into storage and there's anything in there for it to feed upon, it could multiply and concentrate. So if it's from a well, you may want to add a purification process to it. But assuming we've got good, clean water, the only other way that if it's sealed, it's going to go bad is if something leaches out of the container. So if you take a good food-grade container, you fill it up with clean water, and you seal it, and there's nothing that can get in there, its storage life is, for all intents and purposes, indefinite. Now, it might get a funny taste, but you're going to be able to drink it, and it's not going to kill you. So like an extreme example would be if you stored it in lead, then the lead would leach out, and you give yourself lead poisoning. Uh, so what you want is any kind of plastic container to be a good food-grade plastic container, and then you can pretty much store your water anywhere or any place that you want to. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense that we can drink water out of good, clean streams with no purification. It's usually not a good idea because there could have been, you know, an animal could have just crapped in there just a few feet upstream or something, you could get, you know, Cleptosporidium or Girardia or any of these, or E. coli or any of these other infections. But for the most part, people drink running water out in the wild and uh, do no purification whatsoever. They tend to not ever have any problems with it. So water doesn't go bad. Things in the water make it bad. So don't overstress that. Just make sure you're starting out with good pure water in the first place. You're using a food-grade container. You're allowing room for expansion if the water should freeze, and you're making sure that it's actually sealed so nothing from the outside can get in. And then water's about the cheapest thing on the planet, so the easy thing to do if you're worried about either contamination or even just bad taste over time is once every six months, take that water, go dump it into a rain barrel or something, and use it to water your garden and refill it. And if you do that, you don't have anything to worry about at all, even from a taste standpoint. So that's a great question. I think it's something people really kind of overstress on. The big thing is to make sure that you have water available uh, so you're on the right track with that. Let's go on and see if we take one more call before we wrap up today's show. Hey, Jack Leatherneck here. A couple of comments. First would be a show suggestion. I think a good, good topic to cover would be wild forage. You may be familiar with the book, Stalking the Wild Asparagus by Yule Gibbons. If so, you know that during several periods of Yule's life, he lived almost exclusively on wild forage. I think this is a good topic to cover in case uh, folks ever find themselves uh, running short on preps, separated from the preps, or they just need to stretch them out. Uh, there's uh, you know, just abundance of wild forage uh, pretty much anywhere you go, as long as you know what you're looking for. second comment I'd like to make would be uh, in regards to the term double speak and double think, made uh, popular through George Orwell's book, 1984. I think a current example of double speak 
will be the terms defense spending and Department of Defense. If you look at the history of this nation, uh, our military has only been used to defend U.S. soil just a handful of times, even if you lump in Pearl Harbor and 9-11. I think it would be correct to start referring to military spending as uh, offense spending and Department of Offense. Thank you. Okay, well, that's uh, some very cool comments there and uh, two very different subjects, but I like them both, so I figured I'd include your call here at the end and give you the grand finale with it. Uh, first on foraging, I'm going to do a little bit of that in the coming shows. I am a little bit hesitant to do an audio podcast on identifying forage. What I may do is just talk about some different varieties of plants and then advise people to go out and find ways to identify them. The problem is that there are plants that look very similar and some are great to eat and some are quite toxic. Uh, There's a plant that looks an awful lot like wild onion except that the uh, little green stalks that come up out of it aren't tubular. They're, they're more like a grass. And if you eat those, they will make you sick, vomit, um, possibly cause you to bleed and eat, uh, eternally and even die. Uh, or wild onions are good. Now, they don't taste a lot like a wild onion, so you wouldn't think people would eat them, but people have eaten it before. So there's a lot of plants out there that are very, very deadly if ingested and some that are very good. So... My concern with an audio podcast is I describe something a little bit too much. Somebody goes out and eats and gets sick or dies. And then maybe their family turns around and sues Jack and the Survival Podcast. Um, The big thing is to be very familiar with what's available in your area. To get a good book, you recommended a great one. I would recommend that people go out and look for books that have full color photographs, and they're going to cost you more, but your life is worth it, of the plants that are available for forage in and around your area. Uh, The Internet is a great resource. There is a guy that does videos on YouTube called Eat the Weeds, and I'll put a link to his YouTube channel in the show notes. He is absolutely out freaking standing uh, in his system of making sure that you're identifying things. Some of the things he talks about is, is it the right time of the year and is it the right area? And if those two aren't right, then even if the plant looks like what you think it is, it probably isn't. Uh, so beyond just visual visual identification, right time of the year, right location. I'm also planning on doing some videos for the members area, the premium members area that I talked about on Friday's show uh, with some of the things that are available right here in Texas. Including my backyard, where we actually can show you video of it, and that will be for our uh, supporting members that type of video uh, uh, lesson, along with some things I'm thinking about doing. My wife and I talked about it today, and I'm pressing her into service as my cameraman. And uh, she came up with, I've got this one little uh, little snake that bites, and we're going to do a video on how to handle biting snakes uh, if they're non-venomous. And it's a little snake, but it's the only one I got that actually still there's a bite me. Uh, and some other fun things like that. So we'll try to do that. So great suggestion on your term of doublespeak, absolutely freaking outstanding. And it's what I've been saying for years. I don't even think the Department of Offense is going far enough. I would say that we have to say it is the Department of Empire Building and Empire Management. That's really what our military has become, is the way of enforcing our, our empire across the world and our nation building across the world. And anybody that knows me 
or has listened to this show more than a few times, knows I'm a huge supporter of the military and our armed forces. And just like we had somebody call in about homeschooling today and say it's not about the teachers, it ain't about the soldiers. It's not about the soldiers from the officer down to the private. It's not about the soldiers. It's about the system and the way the government's using our military. And some of the things that are going on right now, folks, I told you in November and I told you in October that I thought Barack Obama would win the election and that he would turn Afghanistan into another Vietnam. And a lot of people that were anti-war were voting for Obama because they thought he would bring the troops home. Well, he's just escalated the troop levels in Afghanistan. And it's, you know, not even above the fold, as they say in the New York Times. Now, when Bush started the surge in Iraq, the whole paper was dedicated to while it was wrong. When Obama starts the surge in Afghanistan, which is what this is, it's, you know, front page, but bottom right-hand corner. Uh, so we're going to see, and this is why, this is why Democrats always seem to do a much more um, vicious uh, warfare than Republicans. And it's not Republicans are good, Democrats are bad. It's because the media will turn a blind eye so the Democrats can get away with more. And if you look at you know, some of the biggest escalations of war in history, uh, World War II under FDR, Vietnam under Lyndon Baines Johnson, and watch Afghanistan under Barack Obama. And watch what happens there, because it's not Iraq, and we're dealing with a different situation. Now, I don't have easy answers to the conflicts around the world, but I do know that we don't need military bases in over 100 countries. That we don't need that. I know that we do not need to spend more than the rest of the world does. So great comment. I'll leave what you said be because it's pretty damn good on its own. Uh, wrapping up today's show, one, I'd like to hear from you guys. Do you like this format of show? And hopefully more people will call in now that I'm actually getting off my butt and getting these types of shows done. These are shows I can crank out on a Saturday or a Sunday. I think it's a good way to do them and play them the following week. So I'm looking for more calls. I'm looking for feedback. Do you like the variety that these shows bring in? Um, two, I want I want to remind you that I'm currently running a beta program for for supporting members of the show. This is completely voluntary again. I will never charge a penny for our forum, for access to the blog, or for access to downloading the shows. This is simply a way that people that want to support the show and what we're doing can do that and give you some extra things. One of the things I talked about today was video that we're going to be making available. I want to be very clear. This is not a private forum. Okay, it's not a discussion group. Uh, the forum we're going to keep open for everybody. It is simply a way, one, to support the show, and two, to gain access to some additional things. Some of the things that we're thinking about adding, one, the video training, two, the archives of the first 100 shows are back there, and I'm going to stop making the archives available to everybody. The last 50 episodes of the show are going to be available at any one time. Supporting members can now. You can go in. They're never going to be a point where you can't get to the material. You can go through every show one at a time and download them if you don't want to pay the member's fee. Or you can be a, a supporting member and get convenient zip files, you know, episodes 1 through 24, 25 through 49, 50 through 74, that type of thing. And there will be other things that we'll be putting back there just for members, including hopefully we're going to be able to set up some kind of a discount club with some vendors and some other things like that. Now, I want to make clear right now, if you join now, all that's back there are the archives of the show. 
There's nothing else. If you join as a beta member, you're just doing it to support the show. You're not getting all this other stuff yet. Uh, it's been too windy to do any videos. We've talked, my wife and I talked today about some video maybe we can do tomorrow. I'll try to get a video or two up, but these aren't even going to be the good videos. They're just going to be to sort out the technology we're going to use to deliver it to the members. Um, so it's just a supporting thing. To compensate for that, what I've decided to do is I've created something called the Foundation Wall. And it is just a very simple little graphic. It looks like a wall with a bunch of bricks in it. And the first 100 members get their name on the wall and get to link to any website of their choice. Please don't tell me you want a link to the Survival Podcast. We don't need that. Support somebody. It could be the Red Cross. Two people have linked to Glenn Beck. It can be your own site. It can be anything you want, as long as it's not a hate site, in which case I'm going to refund your membership and I'll tell you I don't want you. We've already talked about that enough last week. I won't reiterate. Now, there is no link to the member's site right now. The only way if you want to participate as a supporting member is to send me an email at jack at the supporting uh, jack, jack at the survival podcast.com or use a contact form and tell me you want to be a supporting member early. The cost is $5 a month or $50 a year if you pay the full year. And you can also pay every three months, every six months. It's up to you. Now, again, I'm not selling the show. I'm not restricting access to the show. All I'm doing is creating a way for people that want to support the show to help me make the show better. I want to do more shows like today with call-ins. Another thing we talked about doing is doing a conference call for the premium members only once or twice a month where anybody can call in that's a premium member. We'll record the show. We'll record the conference call. It will be made available to everybody, but only premium members will be able to be on the call and different cool things like that. So I'm trying to create kind of a premium level of service without taking away anything that I've done up to now, so please don't send me an email angry with me for taking away the show and charging for it, like I've gotten from two people, because that's not what I'm doing. Uh, I just would like to get to a point where I can dedicate about five to six hours a day to doing this show, and I also got an email from somebody who said, I don't want a five to six hour long show. That's not what I mean when I'm talking about is research, editing, putting together a much more professional show for you guys, and providing more things in video for the premium members area. I'm also looking for anybody out there that has a digital product that you would make available free to members to donate it for the members area. It could be a PDF, any kind of thing that somebody can download, so it doesn't cost you money to actually send them out, uh, and that would give you exposure and publicity. So contact me if you're interested in that, and if you are a vendor, uh, anybody that runs a business that would be interested in extending discounts to our premium members, and you have some simple way to track that, I'd be willing to list you in that back office and make you available as a discount vendor uh, for our premium members. So hopefully that that program will build support. There are plenty of 100, the first 100 spaces left. We had a little bit, I think over a dozen people, and some people are saying, I don't even want to be on the wall, I just want to participate and help you out. So we had about a dozen people do that already. Plenty of positions left. Know this, this show's going out Monday. But it's going to be busy. It's why I recorded on Saturday. You probably, if you send me an email, won't hear back till Monday night or maybe even Tuesday morning. Don't worry, I will respond to you. It's very important to me to get this program off the ground and get it up and running. But it's probably not going to be uh, right away on Monday. So expect a response Monday evening or Tuesday morning from me on how to actually sign up for the show. And understand, getting your name on the wall may take me a while uh, to get it done. After I put you up, I'll send you a link to the wall, and you can see how it's growing. And once 
once I'm ready to uh, go just a little bit past beta, I'll put links on the site to the wall and links on the site to the member area where people can find it on their own, but I'm just not comfortable doing that right now. Today's show may be actually one of the longest shows that we've ever done, but it's because I had a lot of material to cover, and I wanted to give you a great show, and I want to... As I close today, tell you that this coming week is going to be hell for me. And um, I'm trying to reposition some things so I can dedicate more time to this show. That's part of why it's going to be hell. There may be a day this week without a show. So that's why I gave you a long one today. Uh, again, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And you can holler. Doesn't matter cause it all gets spent